Welcome to the Management Lab. In this episode of the podcast, Sean and I will talk about stereotype threat. As you will hear throughout our discussion, the topic entails references to various stereotypes that are both distasteful and untrue. While we do talk about them during the episode in our conversation, we just wanted to put it out there that we are in no way supportive of or condone any of these stereotypes, we are merely discussing the research in reference to these stereotypes. With that said, we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Management Lab. I'm Sean Hansen from Saunders College of Business at Rochester Institute of Technology. And I'm Uri Gall from the University of Sydney Business School. Hi, Sean. Hi. How's it going? Things are going okay. I think they're headed in the right direction, but slowly. How about you? Oh, now I'm intrigued. Um, yeah, same. <laughs> things are good. No, I think things are, are fine. It's summer here, so everything is... Um, bright and shiny and warm which got that from a few days away from the city which was good and um i i had the i don't know if it's fortune or misfortune of of getting a glimpse of the republican debate that took place yesterday in the us i just got some sound bites that people put on twitter and i had a kind of a a deja vu of of um like you know seeing trump um, answering questions in his very um, unique style. How could that give you deja vu? There was no Trump in the debate. What do you mean there was no Trump? I saw Trump, some bites of Trump him talking. Trump was not in the debate. Hmm? Oh, okay. So, but he was interviewed by somebody yesterday, and people. Oh, they might have done a town hall. No, Donald Trump has assiduously avoided all the Republican primary debates. Right. Okay. So, but yeah. he was interviewed by somebody, and I, I. Because it was just a soundbite, I didn't realize it was outside of the debate. Um, but either way, just his unique style of... <laughs> it's so weird. This guy is so weird. And it's so weird to me that this weirdness and, and complete disregard for having a proper conversation that is even remotely attached to reality as most people know it. Or, or it all follows the rules of English usage in any way. <laughs> Like yeah, he, did, and his, he just he he goes from clause to clause. Like he doesn't even form full sentences. No, and it always revolves around him and how great his stuff yeah. is, and how smart he is, and how successful he's been. And the fact that this is not a major turnoff for the vast majority of people is so bewildering to me. I just don't. Well, understand. that's a no, that's a good point. Um, so uh, I would argue that it is a major turnoff for the majority of people. Vast is a ambiguous word. But the, my core frustration about politics in the United States is we are barreling, you know, some 10 months from now toward a, um, an election in which we will, we as Americans will have a choice between two people, which the vast majority of the country does not want either. Right. A majority of the country wants neither of these people to be the candidates for president. And that's what it's going to be. And to me, that reveals I, I often 
will claim that there's great wisdom in many of the political structures of the United States, the balance of powers, you know, the the structures and processes put in place by the Constitution. Um, this is definitely one of those cases where it highlights the deficiencies of our political system, yeah. that you could have an, a, ch a choice for the, you know, effectively the leader of the free world between two people that most most of the electorate does not want. Sure. But given that choice between these two highly unpopular individuals, the fact that one of them who's proven himself to be a pathological liar and profoundly corrupt, a profoundly corrupt politician, the fact that he's, he seems to be ahead in the polls against Biden, that is deeply concerning. Uh, so I, I hear you. I do think it, it's fair to note that there are lots of people who would argue that both of these candidates could be characterized as pathological liars. <laughs> um, yes. Joe I, uh... Biden continues to tell very explicit lies about his own life and biography. I heard someone say, and it's very true, I think, um, anytime Joe Biden prefaces a story with, um, with him being referred to as Joey, so if he says, my father would say Joey, or my granddad would say Joey, or my mother would say Joey, any story that follows is complete and utter is a complete and utter fabrication. Now and the, question is, the question true. is, does he know that? <laughs> or maybe he believes perfect, it is true. Perfectly valid question. <laughs> you know, he claims to have been places that he couldn't have been. And, you know, it's just... Yeah, but the more serious issue to me is that beyond the you know the lies and the the corruption is that I don't think Trump has any regard to the American democracy. I think to him it's a nuisance that needs to be done away with. Yeah, I don't believe that. I don't. I and look, you know me. I'm I'm not a Trump supporter at all. I I, I share your your critiques. You know, I think he is a, a clinical narcissist. I think it's very clear. We're putting off surely somebody who might be listening. But I, at any rate, I, I'm not telling other people how to think, but I agree with you completely. Um, and I think the narcissism is just, you know, the self-regard is just overwhelming. I, um, I also don't think he's a very smart person. Yeah, but no, but that's... Uh, <laughs> I think he's straight dumb. But having said that, all that, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, that's fine. I was going to edit myself out, as I often do. <laughs> yeah. Um, having said all that, I, I do not share these, you know, the hyperventilation about this will be the end of democracy if he's reelected. I, I just don't believe for a second that even if Trump were to return to the, the, the Oval Office, that he would be in a position to fundamentally destroy the mechanisms of American democracy. I don't buy that argument at all. Well, I, I get I, maybe that remains to be seen. Um, I hope he doesn't win, but if he does win, that's going to be a, I think, a real stress test for the American democracy, and obviously because of its size and and significance in the world, it's going to have repercussions way beyond America. And um, yeah, um, it remains yeah. to be seen what's going to happen. And it, it does. It did occur to me that you know. People talk about it, talk about identity politics, and I do think that in many, maybe most, maybe all cases, uh, at least part of the reason that people vote the way that they do has has to do with how they define themselves and how they see themselves, both as individuals, 
but also as members of different groups, which they find meaningful that as you know providing value and meaning to their lives. Yeah, and um, sure. yeah, so that's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But I also think it's um, it's relevant to what we're talking about today. And and so the topic that we're talking about today is, I guess, broadly defined as a stereotype threat. Do you want to briefly explain what it is and why we think it's important and interesting for anybody who runs a business, manages people, works in an organization, why we think it's interesting and relevant and important? Yes. Although I will say, I want to caveat this because part of me is a little apprehensive talking about this just because it, I think who wants to hear two heterosexual white guys talk about uh, the, the challenge of stereotype threat. Hopefully some people still want to, because we will talk about. Uh, well, okay. So uh, I, I, I take issue with that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think um, anyone, anyone, okay, can we, okay, let's first of all, define what it is. So people know what we're talking about. And then I, I will um, challenge the point that you just made. Sure. So stereotype threat describes the situation in which there's a negative stereotype about a person's group, group identity, and that he or she is concerned about being judged or treated negatively on the basis of this stereotype. So that definition comes from a, a review article, I think it's fair to characterize it, by Spencer et al. in American Review of Psychology in 2016. And I think the the one piece that leaves out is that th that fear, that concern about um, being judged based on the basis of that negative stereotype has implications for that person's own performance in a lot of different domains. Right. So if I were to paraphrase this, perhaps, perhaps and perhaps put it more simply, a stereotype threat is a phenomenon where individuals may underperform in certain situations where they feel that um, well, they are aware of stereotypes that exist about the social group. Um, and these stereotypes may suggest that they're not going to perform well in this task, right? And because of this awareness, that will hamper their ability to perform compared to people in that situation who don't have this awareness of a threat. So I'm not sure that simplified it, but yes, I think it's a fair, <laughs> I think it's a fair characterization. Although I don't think the underperformance in that domain is inherent in the concept of stereotype threat. It's a byproduct of it, right? But it's this idea that um, I'm put in some context that that might involve a uh, a negative stereotype associated with an identity group of which I'm a member, and it makes me uh, cognizant of it and apprehensive that my own performance could could serve to reinforce existing stereotypes or uh, engender a judgment in line with those stereotypes, things like that. Yeah. So if we were kind of to break it down, how it works, so does the awareness of the stereotype, right? An individual is aware that there's a negative stereotype about their social group concerning a specific ability or a task, like taking a test, a math test, right? Is Which is... Mm -hmm what many of the studies look at and we'll talk about mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. um and because of this awareness there's a fear that what they do in this context of the test might confirm the stereotype right so if the stereotype is right. that um black americans 
are not as intelligent and they believe that a test, a black person believes that the test that they're taken is in some way diagnostic of their intelligence, they're going to have this extra fear of not performing well and thereby confirming the stereotype. And that fear um, is a distraction. It creates extra stress mm-hmm. in this situation. And that extra stress and the way that we process and deal with it is going to take away resources that you would otherwise devote to actually completing the test, and that would hamper the performance. Right, absolutely. And a lot of the a lot of the the early work on stereotype threat focused on uh, a couple contexts. It did focus on African Americans with regard to uh, so Claude Steele, as as I read it, Claude Steele is actually one of the real pioneers of this domain, and Claude Steele is a very well published. Um, social psychologist is it fair to call him a social psychologist i know his brother shelby Steele. the two of them i believe tend to have very different perspectives on the world um but i i believe they both tend to operate in psychological spaces um and in the pioneering of this work tend to focus on sort of the impact of negative stereotypes particularly in the african-american community uh performance on things like you know standardized tests and things of that nature yeah so still and aronson wrote the um, the seminal paper in 1995 that kind of started this whole line of research and i think one of the original observations that um gave rise to this idea was that if you look at sat scores in the us and the sat scores um kids take them when they're usually when they're in high school is that right right so usually end of junior year or early in senior year of high school, or maybe it's middle of junior year, but right in high school in preparation for submitting for your college applications. Right. So this is like a standardized test that's meant to be predictive of your academic ability. And the right. observation was that for any um, score bracket, SAT score bracket, there was a significant difference in actual academic performance between black students and white students. Which shouldn't it should that should not have been the case, right? Because we're talking about students with the same, roughly the same SAT scores, which predict academic performance, and therefore they should have performed relatively similarly. But then there were significant differences across the board um, between different races. Yeah, I was shocked by that were statistic. You? Yes, because I, I think the the general uh, argument and perception with regard to a lot of standardized scores is that it often under um, estimates the performance of uh, of people in various minority uh, categories, right? And and therefore that the test, because it's underestimating actual academic performance, is giving a false uh, a falsely lowered um, expectation. And this data that they cite here seems to imply the opposite: is that the test, in certain ways, overestimates subsequent performance for members of certain stigmatized groups. So I I found that really surprising. Yeah, no, that's a good point that you're making because I've heard that argument as well that these standardized tests tend to favor people who are more, let's just say privileged, right? Regardless of the specific race or or social category. Um, So yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, well, I I think that's certainly the case, right? Yeah, so I haven't haven't thought about that, but that's, that's a good point. Um, so yeah, that was the observation that kind of sparked this whole line of research into what was later known as as stereotype threat. 
And in that seminal 1995 paper, um, they conducted uh, a few different experiments to flesh out kind of the different aspects of this phenomenon and how it actually works. The And I, I think it's worthwhile to briefly talk about um, some of the early work that laid the foundations to understanding what this is. What? Yeah, I think we should actually just touch quickly on these four studies that are reflected in that paper, because I, I found them quite fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I wasn't going to run away yeah. from them, just given some framework here. So we'll talk about those. Sure. Um, and then we'll talk about the we'll talk about how a stereotype threat works, the different mechanisms um, that underpin how it actually uh, plays out in in various settings, and then we'll talk about the the consequences. So we mentioned underperformance, but that's just one consequence. There are others that I think are really significant, both for managers and people who work in organizations to understand. And finally, we'll talk about some coping strategies and how we can mitigate or ameliorate the effect of, of stereotype threat. Yeah, sounds good. Um, okay, so you want to start by, do you want to talk about the first study real quick? Sure. So um, in the in the first study, they basically had them do a scholastic aptitude type thing. And it was actually questions from the GRE. Uh, GRE is an abbreviation for graduate record examination. So it's a standardized test. Um, so it was a set of 30, uh, 30 minute tests with several items from the GRE exam. And importantly, the questions were intended to be difficult to sort of stretch any respondents who would, who would have to take it. And um, they deliberately segmented the, uh, the, they selected students who were uh, black, as in capital B black, African-American or uh, white. Mm -hmm. And and in one condition, in essentially the treatment condition, they told the participants that the um, that the question or the exercise was diagnostic, that it was intended to essentially evaluate their scholastic aptitude. Their intellectual and, ability, yeah. Yeah, ultimately, intellectual ability. And in the other condition, the... I guess it would be a control condition. They they just told them it was an exercise, like an intellectual, or not even intellectual, just a you know a, a an exercise for them to go through. So there was no implication of diagnosing ability in the in the control condition. Mm -hmm. And so this is sort of getting at is is there is there an experience when when people feel that they have to perform, you know, that they're sort of that they're being scrutinized along this dimension. In this case, intelligence, where some stereotype exists within the the cultural milieu, and the findings uh, uh, were were pretty significant. So, uh, in the condition of diagnostic, in the diagnostic condition, that is again where the students are told that they're being evaluated for their cognitive ability, intellectual ability, the black subjects significantly underperformed white subjects in that condition. However, in the non-diagnostic condition, there was no difference in performance. I mean, there was very non-significant difference in performance uh, between the two the two groups. Yeah, I just want to make sure that, that everybody understands that in the treatment condition where people were told that there were, that the tests were reflective of, or that, that they um, focus on intellectual ability, that's a condition where people's stereotype threat is being primed, right? So they're being made aware of the possible stereotype that exists out, out there in society that, that 
black individuals or African American are not as intellectually capable as white people, right? And so when when they were being told that this test is diagnostic of intellectual ability, that's just a way of priming this this stereotype that exists in society. And in, in the control condition, this stereotype is not primed at all. So it's kind of a more stable environment. Uh, but the point is the the white students essentially perform exactly roughly the same across all conditions. But the black students only saw a decrease in the diagnostic condition. That is where they have been told that this is going to be evaluative, right? Um, and the the important caveat there is the questions are the same, right? So it's not different questions. It's not like the diagnostic condition is in actuality more difficult. It's just that basically in the minds of the subjects, there's more on the line in the diagnostic condition. Yeah. And so it's that that the evidence the or the the point that this study is making is that it's the perception, you know, communicating the idea that there's more on the line, particularly vis-a-vis -vis something where they might be aware of a un grounded stereotype that exists that it causes that decline in performance and they did a couple of follow-up studies or experiments as part of the same paper um the second study um, looked at the the rate in which they answered the test and also the accuracy of their work and they found that in the treatment condition the treatment condition impaired both the rate and the accuracy of the answers that they that they gave, which is not entirely surprising given the results that we just discussed. Yeah, yeah. And then a third study looked at the impact of test diagnosticity, right? That's whether or not they're being told that the test is actually reflective of intellectual ability, the impact of that on stereotype activation and self-doubt. So what they mm -hmm. saw, and it will come clear in a second what it means, that black participants in the treatment condition produce more race-related completions of word fragments than black participants in the non-diagnostic condition. Right. And so these were basically like words where there were letters missing, some with enough letters missing to, you know, as I was looking at it, I couldn't figure out what they were getting at. Um, yeah. But with letters missing, but that had some racial valence, um, associated with them and and the black participants essentially completed more of those than anyone else under any uh, in the diagnostic condition completed more of those than anyone else in any of the conditions uh across the study meaning essentially that there was something about race um as a phenomenon being triggered in the exercise and also uh, something to do with self-doubt that creeped into their consciousness because some of the word fragments were also reflective of self-doubt. And there was, again, a significant difference between the conditions where in the diagnostic condition, um, black participants produced more words or completed more words that had to do with self-doubt than in the control condition. Um, right. Interestingly, yeah. in the diagnostic condition, um, black participants also expressed um, more... Uh, what's called stereotype avoidance. So in, in response to different questions, they express preferences for things like activities or styles of music, some of which were stereotypic. That was by design. That's the way the experiment, experiment was designed, uh, was mm -hmm. stereotypic mm -hmm. of African-Americans. 
Um, so they actually had a reduced, they expressed a reduced preference for these things in the in the treatment condition, right? Because they were trying to distance themselves from the perceived negative stereotype of that social identity of them being part of the African American community in the U.S. Yeah, um, I, I don't want to overstate that last piece, but yes, they 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 seem to sh- the the reduced preference uh, for those things seem to suggest, you know, some essential. Uh, the the phrase they use is stereotype avoidance, but some sort of distancing from those identity elements, maybe or deflection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right. the rationale is, you know, I'm being made aware of being part of this group that has a negative stereotype against it, and my reaction is, well, actually, I'm not that strongly committed to that group, and I don't have such strong preferences for things that are typically associated with this group, like different, you know, specific types of music and so on. See, the interesting thing there, though, is you're saying I'm being made aware of my role within this group. And the point is, the point of the study is that what's making them aware is no, there was nothing active trying to make them aware of their group identity. But it was the implication of a difficult diagnostic test that is raising that awareness for them. But it's not just a level of difficulty. It's also the fact that it's reflective of intellectual ability. Evaluative. Well, I, right, right, and that it's evaluating them on some in some way. But the point is, is that that's raising essentially for them this this self characterization is one of the phrases. It's making them self characterize vis a vis the stereotype. Yeah, so it's not an explicit statement that you are you know part of this community. It's more like a situational cue that's inserted into the design of the experiment that makes them subconsciously become more aware of this of their membership in this group and uh um yeah and and that that has the impact that we're talking about the impact that we're talking about um what's really interesting in a subsequent study in as part of the same paper um they they primed in the treatment condition they they primed people's race before they took the test mm-hmm. by basically giving them a short demographic survey to answer before they took the test and part of one of the questions was what is your race and that fact alone had a very similar impact to the one that we saw in the first study which is to basically cause african-american participants to significantly underperform relative to the white participants and that happened that effect happened even when the test was not described as being reflective of intellectual ability right so the mere um, priming of the race before taking the test had this impact without anything else. Yeah, which I, I think is, in my reading, was a very powerful evidence of the the, the negative impacts of stereotypes. Right? You know, the the idea of the stereotypes in general and their internalization, or or I, I don't know if internalization is the right word, but their potential for self characterization can have this. Uh, enormous negative impact. And, and you're raising an important point here. It's a general effect. So it's not restricted to African Americans. In fact, there are many, many studies that demonstrate stereotype threat. Um, you know, so one study looked at the performance of Latinos and Latinas um, relative to white people, children from low socioeconomic status versus kids from high socioeconomic status psychology students versus science students, um, Mm -hmm. white men versus Asian men when it comes to math and quantitative skills. 
Mm-hmm. Women with regard to, to math is a very big area of focus in this research. I think it was specifically because Claude Steele, as a researcher, and he's an African-American gentleman, I think a lot of his early research did focus on the dynamics of psychology within the Black community. And, and that might have been one of the key drivers for a lot of that early research, but it has it certainly applies across almost any demographic group that is subject to negative stereotypes. Yeah, and I think an important point to keep in mind is that everybody is susceptible to stereotype threat because almost, if not everybody, is a member of some group and has some sort of a social identity. And by the way, social identity is, is that part of our identity that derives from our membership in certain groups. It could be a racial group, an ethnic group, a social group, a cultural group, whatever it is, a professional group, it doesn't really matter. Sex, gender identity, right, yeah. sure. So everybody is is a member in some group that somebody has some sort of a negative stereotype about. So it's certainly not restricted to black people in the US or to um, any specific ethnic group. We're all susceptible to it. And that's why it's a universal phenomenon. And, that, and that's why it's so important to understand how it works. Um, okay, so look, we've talked about some of the uh, um, the early work on stereotype threat and what it actually is, what the impact is uh, in terms of underperformance. But let's talk about some of the the major mechanics of the process whereby stereotype threat unfolds, like how it actually plays out. Right. And this is where we're going to tap into... Um, a second paper that we read by Schmatter. I really hope I'm pronouncing the name properly. How would you pronounce that name? Schmatter. Yeah, Schmatter, Johns, and Forbes. So it's Tony Schmatter. Psychological Review. Michael Jones and Chad Forbes. An Integrated Process Model of Stereotype Threat Effects on Performance. And in that model, they propose three or four... Um, sub processes or um, reasons, if I were to talk about this more simply, perhaps, why we see this underperformance occurring in situations where people experience stereotype threat. Um, how do you want to tackle this? Do you want to take a first tab, get us going? Sure. Uh, yeah. So, one is uh, a physiological stress response. So, the idea is the invocation of this stereotype or the um, it, when one becomes uh, cognizant or uh, is responding to this, the presence of this negative stereotype, they have a physiological response. So, you know, heart rate implications. Uh, I think there was one, in one of these, there was, you know, galvanic uh, galvanic skin measurements. So the same type of reaction you have in a lie detector test or something like that. Yeah. And that stress response is taxing, um, not just physiologically, but it's also taxing it's taking away resources from our working memory. And that, that's a primary construct or um, concept that's, that's central to the model, right? Because there are various reasons why the experience of stereotype threat impairs our working memory. And working memory, when it gets degraded, in turn reduces our ability to perform. So that's the main relationship that they, that they focus on there. Yeah, and all of these all these mechanisms sort of feed into working memory. So the idea is, you have this in that case a physiological stress response um, that in, impairs your working memory, so your performance on a cognitive task goes down. 
you might also have uh, this sort of monitoring process where you're consciously thinking about trying to not reinforce the the stereotype uh and that similarly is is argued to reduce the working memory of the subjects let's expand on that a little bit more this monitoring process so the reason this happens is this monitoring activity and why it um is associated with underperformance is that it causes people to be acutely aware of what they're doing when they perform that specific task that's associated with stereotype threat. So rather than being focused on how do I succeed in completing the test or doing that task in the best possible way, I'm just thinking about my own performance as it might be viewed through the lens or the prism of the stereotype that I may that that's associated with the group that I may belong to. Yeah, yeah. And you're becoming more consciously active or actively conscious rather of yourself and your performance. Yeah. So if you think of an example, you know, you may be part of a social group in the US that um I don't know, they have a funny accent. Right. And you're trying to have a conversation to negotiate a, a deal on, uh, I don't know, a new refrigerator, a new car that you're trying to buy. But rather than focusing on being an effective negotiator and trying to reduce down, you're just acutely aware of how you pronounce certain words and how, how they might sound to the person that you're interacting with. Um, and by focusing on the accent and trying to get every word in a perfect American accent, which I'm not doing very well. <laughs> um, that takes away your ability to focus on being a, an effective negotiator and reduces your performance in that context. Uh, it, to a certain extent, I think this could almost be characterized as overthinking things, right? Like if I drop a ball within a foot of the cup and I know I'll get a, get a birdie, I'm so thinking, oh, there's no reason not to get a birdie here. It's so close. You know, it's I should be able to get it. This is for, for everybody who's not a privileged white man. Let's just explain. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a very poor golfer. That was a golf example, everybody. That was a golf <laughs> example. Yeah. The opportunity to get a birdie is rare enough for me that when it comes, I feel like, oh, my God, I got to get it. And I am sure to miss it because I overthink every aspect of it. And so. I, and now I'm not saying that's stereotype threat. I'm just saying that it's a similar psychological dynamic. Yeah. So it would have been a stereotype threat had that inability to perform or had to do with you being, I don't know, Irish because Irish can't play golf or whatever it is. I think the Irish are pretty good golfers, but okay. Fair enough. <laughs> well, actually, I think some of the, some of the uh, research suggests that golf is one of the domains in which uh, stereotype threat has been uh, studied, but I don't know specifically what groups were the core subjects in that study. But that's that's an important point to make because there's different types of tasks where stereotype threat has been found to be significant. One is the stuff we've talked about so far, for the most part, which is these intellectual tasks like taking tests, making decisions, things like that. But there's um, other more kind of physiological tests like playing golf mm -hmm. and we we see the effects of stereotype threat there as well and here we're talking about stereotype threat that's the consequence of of conscious monitoring right because right. certain tasks are best performed when we don't think about them yeah automatically 
Yeah, we, we do them automatically, right? And and people mm-hmm. often talk about, you know, being in this state of flow where you're most effective as, uh, you know, when you play basketball, you ride a bike, you play an instrument. Uh, there have been studies uh, about doctors and surgeons and how they perform at their peak when they don't think about what they're doing. There's this, like I said before, this state of flow that they find themselves in. And when you actually consciously reflect on what you're doing and you focus consciously on the activities that make up that task that you're supposed to perform, it actually reduces your ability to perform. Yeah, quite significantly. Yeah, so this is the this is the effect that we're seeing here. Okay, so we talked about physiological stress that that impairs working memory and causes us to under, underperform. We talked about um, conscious monitoring processes whereby we we become you know hyper vigilant about how we we do in a certain situation, which takes away resources from both from working memory, but also it um, impairs our ability to perform, you know, in this state of flow. And um, I guess the last thing that they, that the model talks about are suppression processes, mm-hmm. right? So we may have mentioned before that the experience of stereotype threat elicits negative emotions and thoughts because it's not a nice situation to be in. And it oftentimes is accompanied by negative thoughts and 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 emotions. And naturally when these things happen in any given context, we would try to address them and and suppress these negative emotions uh and, and thoughts in in hopefully to give rise to more positive ones. But these suppression efforts themselves are cognitively taxing. And so when we try right. to do that, that takes away from our ability to have a, a a very efficient working memory, which in turns, again, causes us to underperform. Right, right. So that the effort, the cognitive effort that goes into trying to suppress your negative thoughts and reactions essentially reduces the the energy and cognitive effort you can put to the task at hand. Yeah. So the mere effort of trying to suppress these, th- these thoughts um, takes away from our ability to focus on the task at hand and has this negative impact on on the performance. So now that we've spoken about both what it is and the main impacts and also some of the primary mechanics that are involved in in how stereotype threats unfolds, let's talk about some of the main consequences and what why we should care about them. Um, I mean beyond the fact that it's a, a you know a widely applicable or observable phenomenon that can impact everybody. Why should we care about this as managers or people who work in organizations? So I guess the the primary thing is that it can cause people to underperform. And underperformance translates into unutilized resources, which is something we definitely want to address as as, um, uh, managers or people who work in organizations. Yeah. Well, and it also means that that those individuals are not achieving their full potential, you know, as as professionals, as you know, um, human beings, whatever, you know, that they're not, they're not able to perform as well as they could because of this, this threat that, that persists psychologically. Yeah. And, and it's really important. And I, uh, I'm going to try and not overemphasize how important the thing it is, but it goes beyond mere underperformance and underutilization. Um, because there are studies that found that the experience of stereotype threat is also associated with which we just said before negative emotions right in the stereotype domain specifically with 
it can lead to decreased interest in performing the task when people feel, you know, when they don't feel good doing something because there's the concern that it might be stereotyped while they're doing it, they're going to be less inclined um, to engage in these tasks in this task in the future. It causes people to diminish their own beliefs in their abilities, mm-hmm. in their self-efficacy. It can have, it can it can undermine their health quite literally. I mean, there's again evidence of physiological impacts suggest that it can you know increase stress hormones and have and even engender uh, potential threatening diseases, things of that nature. Yeah. And it can also undermine people's sense of belonging to a community, to a group, to an organization. It can negatively affect their motivation to engage in in the task, and it makes them more likely to withdraw from the relevant setting, from the context. So all of these, to me, you know, translate into a very clear and loud signal, which we shouldn't ignore. Um, We need to be acutely aware of this. That. This is a very, this is a very, a, a, a very significant phenomenon with multiple negative consequences that we need to be. Yeah, we need to. We, we have to address this. Yeah, absolutely. And the question is how you know if you're somebody who's working in an organization or a manager and you're aware of this, so you kind of throw your hands up in the air and say, okay, so what can I do about this? If it's so universal, like we say that it is, and everybody is susceptible to it. How how can we fix this? How can we mitigate the effects of this? Yeah, and so there there's it seems based on the literature there's a couple paths that have been considered to date. Uh, one which is referred to as the reconstruel, you know, is taking whatever the task is and framing it as a lower pressure undertaking than um than it may be even right but it's sort of reducing the pressure around the undertaking because it is in fact the pressure around the undertaking that is initiating the sort of salience of the stereotype threat when we look back to the the steel and aronson paper the tasks were the same whether they called them diagnostic or not but it was only when the students perceived them or the subjects rather perceived perceived them as diagnostic that they felt that they experienced this threat and as a consequence the reduced performance it's basically just reframing the situation and the task such that it's perceived as not being um relevant to the stereotype at hand right yeah yeah Yeah. well and and not even not so so maybe it's not relevant to the stereotype at hand or just not as high stakes you know, framing it as less uh, high stakes. One of the things that came out of the literature is that this stereotype thread doesn't apply to all activities. It applies to activities that are sort of at the limit of people that are challenging, especially challenging, right? In that original study, those were all challenging questions. And across this literature, you see that, you know, sort of very routine activities, uh, people perform just fine. You know, even if there might be a negative stereotype associated with it. But if it's fairly simple things, there's no reduction in performance. It's only for challenging things. But isn't that the case? Because so we've talked about before how the threat impairs working memory, which in turn causes a reduction in the performance. But that becomes only noticeable in performances where we actually need to devote sufficient working, working memory rather 
to the accomplishment of that task. And if that task is not that hard, we don't need that much working memory in the first place. And therefore, if we you know use less of it, it doesn't actually cause any impact in performance. Another way, another approach to um, reduce um, or to mitigate um, the impact of, of stereotype threat is not through the framing of the test itself, but by focusing on people's identity and by trying to boost people's identity elements that sit outside of the threatened stereotyped community or group right so if you're dealing with uh there was actually there was this one study that i thought was extremely illuminating in that sense it was a, a pretty clever idea that they came up with so they um they looked at um asian women so they actually occupy or they have two kind of dual significant identities here, social identities. One is Asian, and Asians are known to be highly stereotyped, capable. Stereotyped as quantitatively gifted. Right? Yeah, and women, uh, I guess, have the opposite stereotype in this context. And what they found was that when they, before taking a test that was diagnostic of quantitative ability, when they primed the Asian identity, women overperformed. And when they, when they primed the female identity, they underperformed. Mm-hmm. So priming an identity that sits outside of the stereotyped community or group can be a real effective way of reducing the impact of stereotype threat. Yeah, my read was that the that what was called stereotype lift, which is sort of the inverse, when it's sort of the invocation of a positive stereotype. Not that positive stereotypes are not problematic as well, but you know, it's you know implication of something, some advantage that might be associated with a group. Um, that there is some evidence of this phenomenon of stereotype lift. You know, if you're primed for that positive stereotype, you might perform better mm-hmm. but it seems like the the impact there is much lower the the difference in performance is much lower than the loss of performance associated with stereotype threat yeah i think i i don't know that there's a a great deal of research on this specific aspect of the phenomenon but i i my yeah. intuition and and we've both read um in in different contexts um you know the literature on, on self-identity and self-affirmation, self-efficacy, and I, mm-hmm. I think there's probably a pretty significant impact there that at least is worthwhile exploring as um, as somebody who's interested in this. Yeah, a related thing is um, engaging in self-affirmation, which is also kind of you know maybe a a, a subdomain of of identity, which we talked about before, right? So engaging yeah. in in self-affirmation exercises like a writing exercise where you kind of encourage to write positive things about yourself before you take a test or before you engage in a task so as to build up your confidence your self-identity it actually mitigates the impact of of stereotype threat and uh, a final strategy i think is presenting people with positive role models that sort of break away from the stereotypical mold of that specific group. So, you know, it could be, if we go back to the example of math and women, it could be like a a woman who's a professor of mathematics, Mm -hmm. right? To kind of demonstrate to people and force the the sense that the stereotype is not all-encompassing. It's not completely stifling. You can actually break away from that stereotype if you only try it. Yeah. 
Okay, Sean, I think we've just about covered everything that we wanted to talk about in relation to this, right? Yeah, I think so. It's a it's a pretty fascinating phenomenon. I had very little knowledge of it before delving into it. And um, I think you're quite right that it's a, a real challenge that has to be um, addressed because it really is costing people value and performance and mental well-being. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Shall we um, move on? Yes. We're going to find out what went down today. going to go first um i can go first oh wait hold on shall we give a, a quick reminder of what the segment is about sure uh so what went down today is we're going to quiz each other on some little historical tidbit of what happened today today is january 11th 2024 so a little earlier than you will be listening to it but we're going to see if we can stump one another uh, I'll go first, but it's quite tricky. So I got to think about how to how to reveal it. But uh, on this day, on January 11th, 1775, there was a uh, the the first person of their identity to be elected to office in the Western Hemisphere. The first person of their identity was elected into office in the Western Hemisphere. In 1775. Yes. 1775. It was in the United States. And specifically, it was in South Carolina. Do you have any guess as to what that identity might be? Uh, was it a Native American? No, it's not a bad guess. It was a gentleman named Francis Salvador, and he was the first Jewish person to hold elected office in the Americas in on this day in 1775. 1775 what was the um the office he was elected into uh took a seat in the south carolina provisional congress he later became the first i'm reading this from history.com he later became the first jewish soldier killed in the american war for independence so what we in the u.s call the revolutionary war well there you go that's poetic justice for you <laughs> for taking office yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I, I, I don't think I've ever. It's a rather obscure factoid. Yeah, I don't think I've ever ever heard the name before. Um. Okay. I have one for you, but uh, um, as you were talking about yours, I realized that there's a time difference between us. So I looked up the 12th of January, which is the date here as we're oh, speaking. Oh yes, of course. 12th of January, 2024. So what happened on the 12th of January in 1915? in the US and just to give you a more specific um more specific context it is uh in the realm of politics okay 1915 US January so um so at this time in January so I'm going to guess it was um so it might have been Woodrow Wilson being uh inaugurated no the inauguration of Woodrow Wilson no it's okay. not as okay. it's not as um significant an event arguably okay it's something that's a bit more obscure okay so this was before the u.s entered the first world war 
First World War was already a year underway. Let me let me give you another. Let me give you a clue. It involves the House of Representatives and a certain proposal that was rejected in the House. Okay. Um, I don't know. You'll have to give it to me. I got. I'm stumped. Okay. The U.S. House of Representatives rejects a proposal today in 1915 to give women the right to vote. Oh my God! When was the 19th Amendment? 19th Amendment passed. Yeah, when were women I, given I'm, the right I'm to checking, vote? I'm checking. I would have thought the 19th Amendment was right around or earlier than that, and I may be way off. Um, June 4th, 1919 was the uh, ratification of the 19th. No, no, no. It was passed by Congress on June 4th, 1919 and ratified on August 18th, 1920. So four took another four years. There you go. For the the passage of the the law. That is crazy. That is crazy to think that a mere hundred and nine years ago, yeah. the House of Representatives rejected a law giving women the right to vote. Do you know what was the first country that gave women the right to vote? No, but I'm gonna guess it's got some association with you. So I'm gonna say Australia. No. No. Close. Okay. A close Denmark. Uh, no, oh, close I was neighbor. thinking you you have worked in Denmark as well. New Zealand. New Zealand. Yes. Interesting. I did not know that. When when did that happen? Let's quickly look. Let's check. 1893. Yeah. So New wow. Zealand 1893. Yes. Women were given the right to vote in New Zealand on the 19th of September 1893. That is wild to me. Yeah. that it's that recent yeah okay sean i think we can um wrap it up good discussion yeah it was good interesting uh i've learned a lot hopefully other people get as well okay we'll talk again soon talk to you soon bye